Hey there, welcome to the Truth and Gratitude Podcast. My name is Brooke Schneider and I am your host here on the Truth and Gratitude Podcast, as well as the writer slash blogger for the Truth and Gratitude blog. What are you going to find with Truth and Gratitude? You're going to find truth, capital T truth. You're going to find faith, all things about faith, as well as travel. These are a lot of the things that I'm super pumped and excited to be sharing with you about. You can check out on the blog all the adventure guides that have been written um, in regards to all the travel and adventure that we've been on, as well as here on the podcast. But also, you're going to be hearing a lot about capital T truth, not my truth, not your truth, but the controversial topic of the truth, capital T, right? As well as things in regards to our faith. And so I'm so excited for you to be here today. Let's dive in. Hey there, welcome back to the Truth and Gratitude podcast. This is Brooke, and today we are covering chapter three from the book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies by Elisa Childers. I've been saying childers this entire time, but it's childers. So apologies to her. But today we are covering chapter three. And in this chapter, it's titled Leprechauns. And she starts off talking about how as her children were growing up, how they believed in leprechauns and Santa and the tooth fairy. And if you have a small children right now, you can go ahead and turn this off. But she goes on to say about how her children were very passionate about, you know, those things. Those things that we grew up um, just having a lot of fun with, right? And her daughter was actually trying to ask about the validity of a leprechaun. You know, are leprechauns real? And, um, you know, she kind of let her uh, decide that on her own, kind of. I mean, she didn't want to squash her childhood Um you know, fun, which I feel bad for the kids whose parents do that. I mean, if you do that, okay, whatever. But in our house, we have lots of fun with leprechauns and tooth fairies and Santa and all that. My children are still very young, so I don't find anything wrong with um, having a little bit of imagination. But her daughter would would go on to continue to look forward to these leprechauns. And um, she was kind of getting to that age where it was like, okay... (laughs) I think you're past the point of uh, of believing in Louis the Leprechaun, right? And her daughter was very passionate about, no, I believe this because I saw the glitter, I saw the, you know, the food coloring in the in the toilet, right? I, I don't know if anybody else has done that, but in our house, our Leprechaun leaves green pee in the toilet. Um, I saw, you know, a little shoe that was left out, so it has to be real, right? And finally, when she came to the realization that maybe, maybe just maybe, there's a different side to the whole thing with leprechauns, right? There's a truth to it. She had a really hard time with that and just letting that go. Um, And so she talks a lot about in this chapter, just about how um, believing, right? Believing in things that maybe, um, maybe we kind of make up in our minds, the proof and the existence of those things, right? And as we've talked about in the other two chapters, just the importance of um, defining words and how those change a lot, change a lot, um, when it comes to our belief system. Um, but again, she really, really stresses the difference between subjective truth and objective truth. So let me kind of tell you what she says about those particular ones. So in order to kind of break it down, cause you may be thinking, okay, subjective, objective, what is that all about? Um, subjective truth is our preference. 
or our opinion, all right? But objective truth, like I like to call it capital T truth, like it is the truth. It says truth is a thought, statement, or opinion that lines up with reality. That's it. If what we say, think, or believe lines up with reality, it's truth. And if it doesn't, it's not. Also, she goes on to say that truth is true for all people in all places and times. It's also something you can't invent, think up, or create. It is something you discover. It doesn't change no matter how much people's beliefs about it do. Truth isn't altered because of how it makes someone feel. Truth is entirely unaffected by the tone and attitude of the person professing it. So I know that's a really long quote, but I mean, man, that's ringing a lot of bells, right? A lot of this is sounding familiar from our previous podcast episode, especially when it comes to um, this idea of changing the truth, changing things based off of how it makes us feel in that moment. If we like it or if we don't like it, maybe we can change a little bit here and a little bit there and it still be true for us. And that's just not what it is. I really like how she says that it really lines up with reality and it's true everywhere. She says, like the idea of two plus two equals four. It's true on every continent, in every time period, and in every culture. It's true if even someone strongly believes in it or doesn't believe that two plus two is four. So she really, really um, stresses that, the importance, because it's important to, de- to define and then to identify, okay, is this, are you saying this is the truth because it's your opinion and how you feel about something? Or is this the truth for everyone? Okay. So I think sometimes a lot of the things that we hear in our culture today are subjective truth. Um, it's, it's everyone's opinions. It's how they feel. It's what feels best for them in their life. Right. And for me, if there are things that I don't believe are true, right. But someone else has that for their life. That's their opinion. And they're welcome to have that opinion. Right. But I think the problem that we have that we see rising up in our culture today is pushing something on other people that it is not a capital T truth. It is not an objective truth. And making sure that those people believe it and say that it is true. So um, leaving from that, what I want to say is we talk a lot about you know, this is my truth. And she really highlights this, that saying this is my truth, that is when someone is saying, this is what I believe to be true, right? Um, It may not be true for every person. So the example that she gives for that is about, you know, cake and ice cream. And she says that, well, my truth is that cake is better than ice cream. Well, I may not feel that way, right? So there, automatically, we have an opinion. We have a preference that's coming into play here. So towards the end of the chapter, she goes on to talk about how the truth really matters. The capital T truth, the objective truth. It, It truly, truly matters. And she goes on to say that there are so many deceptions and so many arguments against the Bible and questioning its validity, questioning its, um, its, its truthfulness. Is, there, is it really um, something that we can put our faith in and something that we can really believe in? 
So I really love this chapter because I was able to read this chapter when I was kind of coming back to my faith, when I was really getting back into the word again and understanding it again on a much deeper level. And I'll be honest with you, I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of doubts just about, do I really believe the word of God? Do I really believe what the word is saying? Am I just believing in this because it's what I've been raised to believe? Or do I truly believe it? I wanted to make it my own faith, not changing things up, right? But I wanted to discover and to learn on my own, not just because someone told me to believe it. So I love this particular quote that she says in the chapter. She said, Christianity is a belief system that stands or falls on objective truth. That's like capital T truth. It is not simply a set of teachings, a philosophy, or a lifestyle. It's not a collection of rituals, mantras, sacraments, and affirmations. Christianity, Christianity is about placing active trust in the person of Jesus. All of this depends on the resurrection of Jesus being something that actually happened in objective truth. And I will tell you that this is where I got kind of hung up at times because I would read, you know, the, I would read the Bible and, and it, it really is just, it's, it's an amazing love story, to be honest with you. I mean, you can see the influence of Christ all throughout the scripture. Um, it's a redemptive story. It, it is, it all ties in together. It's not separate books, just all formed together. It really, um, once you understand the historical context, um, it really flows all together. But the thing that I kind of struggled with was like, man, do I really believe in these miracles, in these signs? Kind of like the supernatural part, but, right? Because it's supernatural. It's not natural. And so I really couldn't find a lot of evidence there. I wanted concrete evidence. I wanted to like find the thing that was just going to make me be like, whoa, right? So that it would make it easier to believe. So it would make it easier to have the faith. Because in society today, um, I personally feel like we want the evidence. We want, we want um, to see it all. We're so used to having something right at our fingertips, all the information that we could ever need. And when it comes to something that requires faith, it's a little bit harder for us to believe, right? Um, and so throughout the rest of this chapter, she points to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Paul has a really interesting story. So Paul actually used to be Saul. And during his time, he actually was a Jewish leader, and he did not like Christians. He actually uh, would condemn Christians during that time, and he would um, he would kind of help assist in in persecuting them, and many times leading them to death. But Saul had an amazing encounter with Christ. He had a revolutionary, supernatural experience experiencing Christ. And from that point forward, he had his name changed to Paul. And from then on out, he wrote so much information that we're reading in the Bible was written by him, which is so crazy and so cool to me that a denier of Christ, a persecutor of Christians, 
somebody that would be like somebody today who is an atheist or agnostic or someone who's really seeking harm to Christians and to believers, it would be like them going around and then all of a sudden preaching the gospel. Like you have to understand that something supernatural, something amazing, something wonderful happened and people wanted to know what. I'm sure that many people were probably terrified of him at first. I'm sure a lot of people were like, is he lying? Does he understand the truth, what we're talking about, what we know to be true? And it probably took quite some time for him to gain the trust with the people. But He became an amazing tool, an amazing witness to many people around him. So he actually talks about how um, the evidence of Christianity, and he talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. So I'm going to read to you the message version. And he starts off chapter 15. I'm just going to read it straight from here. He talks about how um, really setting the foundation, the truth that people needed to understand and learn. So chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 3, he says, The first thing I did was placed before you what was placed so empathetically before me that the Messiah died for our sins exactly as Scripture tells it, that he was buried, that he was raised from death on the third day, again exactly as Scripture says, that he presented himself alive to Peter, then to his closest followers, and later to more than 500 of his followers all at the same time, most of them still around, although a few have since died. That he then spent time with James and the rest of those he commissioned to represent him, and he finally presented himself alive to me. It was fitting that I bring up the rear. I don't deserve to be included in that inner circle, as you well know, having spent all those early years trying my best to stamp God's church right out of existence. So this right here, those verses 3 through 9, they're going to sound a little bit different in other versions of the Bible, but this was the Christian creed. This was something that he could quickly... Um, teach other believers or pe- people he was um, presenting the gospel to. And it was something that was to the point, right? Boom, boom, boom. Naming out the truths that they needed to know about Christ. Um, that way they were able to share that very quickly. Um, it was very um, simple to understand. Um, and they didn't need to read anything because at that time, during that time, Um, rabbis would have read scripture. You had to learn how to read. So this allowed people, this creed allowed them to know the word, to know the gospel and to be able to, um, to, to teach and preach it in a very simplified way. But I love what he goes on to say. He talks about the resurrection of Christ. I'm going to come down to verses 12 through 15. He says, now let me ask you something profound yet troubling. If you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, risen from the dead, how can you let people say that there is no such thing as a resurrection? If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors, and everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God, All of these affidavits we passed on to you, verifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications, if there's no resurrection. So another version says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So he goes on to say that if that one component, we can believe that Christ was here, his existence was real. We can believe that he uh, was a great teacher. We can believe that he did all these great things for people. But if we do not believe in the resurrection, 
he goes on to say in chapter 16 or verse 16, if corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't because he was indeed dead. And if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. So he goes on to say that, man, our faith really, really depends on if we truly believe the resurrection of Christ. And that goes on to bring up the supernatural component. It's hard. It's hard to believe something so wildly unnatural happened. And that is where faith has to come into play. I don't believe that we need to go around just blindly believing or that. I think that it's okay to do research and to dig. And that's one thing that she goes on to talk about. She says, at this point, you may be thinking that Paul is asking us to believe in a miracle that supposedly happened more than 2,000 years ago, just because he said it occurred. How can we know he's telling the truth, capital T? It's a fair question, and thankfully, there is historical evidence in non-Christian sources that can tell us all about this. So... She goes on to say that a number of ancient Greek, Roman, and Jewish resources within a couple of hundreds of his, years of his life, of Jesus' life, came out. And you're able to go and do research and to find access to all of these ancient sources. But I, I want to leave you with a couple of people that she actually recommended. She talks about Dr. Gary Habermas, and he is so fun to listen to. Um, I know that it sounds like I'm nerding out, and I am. And when you start researching and looking him up, you will nerd out too, but it is so fun. So Gary Habermas, he's a historian, and he knows all about the New Testament. He's written um, thousands of articles and works all about Jesus' resurrection. And in between the years, she says 1975 and 2003. And he discovered many, many facts um, about the resurrection that many um, ultra-liberal to very conservative people can all agree upon. So she lists out four things that he found out. So the very first thing is Jesus was truly a real person, and he died by Roman crucifixion. The thing that you need to know about a Roman crucifixion, this type of death was a humiliating death. Um, it was a humiliation. It, is, it, was not, um, it was not a particular death that was reserved for every person. In fact, you'll read in the Bible that in the Jewish community, many people were stoned to death. But to be hung on a cross by the Romans, by the people who actually uh, were the oppressors of the Jewish people, who were over those people, this was an absolute um, horrific way to die. It was a slow death and it was a humiliating death for someone to die. Jesus' disciples believed he rose from the dead and appeared to them and they were willing to suffer and die while maintaining those beliefs. This is one thought that I want us to hang on to in just a moment. There were many, 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 many people and many witnesses who went to their deaths, who were martyrs for, they believed this capital T truth. Is there something that you believe in so much so that you're willing to die for it? If it's the truth, right? But I don't think any of us are willing to die for a lie. I think eventually, if we were lying about something, we would come out and say, okay, I'm not willing to die for this. Especially a horrific, humiliating death like a crucifixion. I'll go ahead and tell the truth. But many of his followers and the witnesses that were there and witnessed him, they in fact were, they were martyrs, but they went to their death. And actually the last chapter of this book, I'm going to explain to you about one particular martyr, one woman who went to her death. Um, she was actually killed by um, 
by by animals. They they all in the they're all in the ring, and um, they set animals loose on her, and she died. Um, she had a child. She had people who were begging her, please, please, just say that you're not a Christian. Say that you do not believe in this Christ. And she said, I can't deny what's true. I can't. She was saddened by that. She didn't want to die, right? But she did because she knew that what she believed in was the capital T truth. The third fact was the church persecutor, Paul, he suddenly became a Christian after having an experience with the one he believed to be the risen Christ. I think it's so cool to hear stories about people who are so far from Christ, who maybe didn't grow up listening to the word, who didn't grow up in church, who, who were atheists, who were agnostic, and to listen to their testimony and just listen to see how they came to Christ. I think it, those are the most amazing stories to listen to. Um, and I, I feel like that they really solidify our faith even more. They excite us and they get us pumped up um, when we hear about this huge transformation in someone's life. And the last fact that Dr. Gary Habermas came to find was James. He was a brother of Jesus, and he was a skeptic. His own brother, his own family did not quite believe in Jesus and who he said he was. He suddenly converted after he believed he saw his brother raised back to life. So it wasn't until after Jesus died and then came back that he was like, oh, he was right. So she also goes on to say that Habermas has also noted that about three quarters of scholars agree that Jesus' tomb was found empty. They have not been able to find a body. Um, I was sitting in church one day and I remember our pastor was talking about how they actually found, I think it was the, the finger or the toe, I can't quite remember, but the finger of the great Buddha. And they have it, you know, like all set up to where people can come and look at it and that kind of thing. And so they were able to find this part of the body of of someone that is worshipped and looked at in great respect by other cultures and um and yet we cannot find any um any body or anything like that of Jesus in his tomb um so one thing i want to wrap this up with is the theory of liar, lunatic, and Lord. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this theory before, but it was by C.S. Lewis. Yes, the C.S. Lewis, the one who wrote all of the uh, the wonderful stories like The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Narnia series. And he actually has a really cool testimony, testimony as well. He was not a believer for a very, very long time. In fact, an atheist. And then he also came to know Christ, which, again, I think that is so cool. But he wrote this theory about, was Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? And his theory was, was that people talk about and say, this is actually from his book, Mere Christianity, this is his quote. It says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So his theory, liar, lunatic, or Lord, what they say is that in order for him to be labeled as a liar, you have to understand that Jesus knew the scriptures through and through. He he fulfilled many of the prophecies in many of the scriptures that were written many, many, many years before him. And not only that, in order for him to be a liar, would you trust some would you would you call him a great teacher? Would you great call him a great moral teacher? Does does a liar have great morals? I don't think so. So we can knock that one out. Lunatic, him being a madman him being out of his mind does a lunatic or a madman perform miracles have a huge following of of people who call him great teacher he had such a huge following the last time that i checked any madman during that time or even today doesn't have a huge following of people you can look in the scriptures of the madman that was found in the cemetery and he was alone in chains he was an outcast And lastly, is he Lord? Is he who he says he was? Elisa Childers says, Childers, excuse me, she says that the explanation that makes the most sense is that Jesus Christ came back to life after he was dead because no one would be willing to suffer and die for what they know is a lie. So think about that. Would you be willing to die for a lie? All of his followers all of the eyewitnesses who experienced him, are they willing to die for something that they know is a lie? Are they willing to die for a lunatic or a madman? I think not. Something revolutionary happened during that time. Something revolutionary, supernatural, and amazing had to have happened because look what has happened. Eyewitness accounts have now, I mean, that truth, the scripture never changing, has stood the test of time until now, until 2023, allowing many people to come to Christ and know him as their Lord. And these are people, these are believers all over the world, right? It goes back to truth never changing and the truth being the truth, no matter who you meet or where you go. It doesn't change no matter how much people's beliefs about it do. So I think that's really, really cool to just hear those facts. I think it's super cool and a little nerdy to to, to nerd out and to learn more about the historical artifacts. And I want to leave you with a couple of people Um, articles and um, just information that I think that would be really, really cool for you to go and check out. Whether you are having a hard time um, maybe trusting what the Bible says about who Jesus Christ was or just to solidify your faith, just to help you grow just a little bit more. So there was a film, a movie that came out in 2017 called The Case for Christ. Um, 
there's actually a documentary called The Case for Christ, and you can actually watch it on YouTube. I highly recommend it. It is older, so the quality of the the filming in itself is not the best, but it is based off a man named Lee Strobel, and he was a writer. I, do, I think he was a journalist at the time. I, I think that's what he did, um, but he was a full-blown atheist. Um, his wife was a believer, but um, he mentions that he got into many arguments with her about just about her faith and, and God, and he wanted to prove her wrong. Um, so he set out, he didn't deny that Jesus was a real person, but he did not believe in the most important part, which was the resurrection and the supernatural part and Jesus being who he says he was. So he set out to prove her wrong and he started doing some research and so you can hear all about this in the documentary, The Case for Christ. You can watch it on YouTube, like I said. But the actual movie, where it kind of has a little bit more of a storyline, um, you'd have to look that up and, and rent. But again, he during this time, as he was trying to prove her wrong, he actually came to know Christ. He had one of those supernatural experiences. And I just think that's super neat. So definitely check him out. And then um, he also has a lot of content on YouTube where he talks about believing, like having evidence for the resurrection and miracles as well. I highly recommend looking up Gary Habermas. Um, and he also has other material as well on YouTube. Um, he has many, many articles that you could read about and he's very easy to understand. He doesn't talk above your head. So I highly recommend him. And then the last thing that I will say, and once you get started looking up these things, like you just find another and then another, and it's just so cool to, to listen to. But lastly, I want to leave you is if you actually go to Elisa Childers podcast, if you look for number 182, so podcast number 182, she talks to a man named Scott Stripling, and he goes on to talk about the archaeological finds that they have found um, and the proof that the Bible is what it says it is and that it is the capital T truth. Um, and it is so cool just listening to all the finds that they've had and um, how researchers, even people who are not Christians, the things that they're finding and how they're confirming that yes, it truly is from um, what the Bible says that it is. So, I hope that this podcast episode didn't go too far over your head, and I highly, highly recommend um, nerding out with some of these people. I think that it will strengthen your faith. Um, it's so I don't think there's anything wrong for asking for concrete evidence of certain things when it comes to the things that we're believing in, but there does have to be a little room for faith, right? Faith for the supernatural, things that we just cannot explain. Um, that's something that I had to learn. Um, so I hope that this helped you in some way and I look forward to our next episode next week. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining me with this podcast episode. I hope you'll be back for our next episode that we will have in the series. Uh, until then, if you need any other Truths and Gratitude content, you can check out Truths and Gratitude on the Instagram page or check out truthandgratitude.com where you can find all things that are faith, travel, and truth. As always, guys, continue to be raw, be authentic, and be you.